Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're, You're listening, listening to Mumbrella Cast. Hello, I'm Tim Burrows. Welcome to the final Mumbrella Cast of 2018, in which we sit back and reflect on the year that was. It was the year of one of the biggest media mergers in Australian history, with Nine's takeover of Fairfax. It was also the year that rocked the ABC, with managing director Michelle Guthrie fired, shortly followed by the exit of chairman Justin Milne. Me Too's ripples splashed across our shores, with Craig McLaughlin dropped from Dr Blake, Barry Hall dropped from Triple M, and Geoffrey Rush ending up suing Sydney's The Daily Telegraph. In Adland, Sir Martin Sorrell exited WPP, a client took his agency to court, Wicked Campers had more ads banned than you can shake a stick at, and it was the year that VML and YNR became, yes, VML YNR. And a quirk of SEO meant that a story about Forex Gold's cricket hat became our second most read article ever. After Jacket Gate, of course. So, where do we start? Well, we start by introducing the team. So, joining me to break down the year in media and marketing is, well, everyone, including our editor Vivian Kelly. Hello. Our news editor Paul Woolbank. Hello, Tim. Our senior agencies reporter Abigail Dawson. Hello. Our senior media reporter Zoe Samuels. Hey, Tim. And our deputy editor Josie Tatty. Hello. So, let's get into it and let's settle in for... A bit of a look back at the year in question. So where do we start? Let's start with the big, I think the big story of the year. Are we going to agree that Nine and Fairfax was the big story of the year, Zoe? I don't know what would be uh, bigger than Nine and Fairfax, so sure, let's go with that. Let's start. Let's just look at it through the lens of how it broke to us in the first place. Talk Talk me through that morning in question. Well, it was a regular morning, I thought. Actually, I thought it was weirdly quiet, which is never a good thing because that means something's about to break. But I was very quickly told that perhaps I should turn on Nine's Today Show, which is the breakfast morning show. So this was some dark spinner who was pointing you in the right direction. Always, always. So I went to turn on the TV and actually couldn't. So I actually had to go on Nine now to do it and log in, of all things, to watch this. And I could see in breaking news on the television, Nine to merge with Fairfax Media. And I think my brain just went... Oh, my day's completely gone. I had a few meetings that day, which I then got other people to call and cancel. And it was, I, I can barely remember. It was such a blur. It was just so quick. Um, we we were, it was me going, I need to write this. I was writing it off what I could hear on the Today Show. The ASX announcement hadn't come out at that point. We, I started typing. We had, I think, Joe's. I think Viv was actually off that morning. I was in bed when all of this was happening, <laughs> recovering from my mum's 60th birthday. Yes, she was. That's it. And I was poodling across the bridge listening you to were. Alan Jones on 2GB, who, of course, you would have thought would cover some form of big breaking news like that. And not a word was spoken on 2GB. Well, well he wasn't watching the Today Show, which is where they were probably announcing it. He was too busy being on air. So I can just remember at that point having the whole team doing little bits for me, be it cancelling meetings, getting a breaker ready, sending me relevant articles. And I can just remember my brain repeating a certain word over and over and over as I was producing it going, this is going to be the biggest day of my career to date and probably one of the biggest ones in my life. Now we said, um, you, you said it was announced at the time as a merger. It wasn't really, was it? 
Well, I don't think it would have gotten through the ACCC if they called it anything other than a merger. But no, essentially it was a is a takeover. It's a, Nine has a majority stake in what was once Fairfax. Now we can say that there is no Fairfax. So effectively, no, it was never a merger. It was definitely positioned that way to probably get through regulate, regulatory approvals. So what we've now seen come together are the assets of Fairfax, the assets of Nine. What are the main parts of that little puzzle? There's lots of little, there's a lot of big parts actually. So the main parts that are included are obviously the Fairfax Media Mastheads, the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, the Australian Financial Review, and obviously there's a number of others as well. There's also Fairfax Media's real estate business domain, which is op- it's listed as a separate entity on the ASX, but essentially that's come under the Nine banner as well. There is Stan, which was actually a joint venture between Nine and Fairfax, which Nine now just wholly owns. There's also Macquarie Media, which Nine has a majority stake in. Uh, whether or not they they choose to make that a, a, a full ownership, like hey, who knows? By the time <laughs> this this podcast goes out, the deal could almost have been done. Potentially, yes. So that I've, if 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 it, if it hasn't by the time this podcast is aired I, aired, I suspect that will happen later down the track. And then there's another of, uh, a number of smaller businesses as well. So Pedestrian TV is a business that that Nine owns. What was once Allure Media uh, was under Fairfax, which which won't exist anymore as well. Car Advice is another. So there's a lot of smaller brands that also sit within that. And and in New Zealand, there's obviously some assets from Fairfax Media, which is which is the stuff business, which I suspect will also be sold off. A, at a huge point. behemoth as a result. So I guess we went from the point where News Corp was probably the certainly once you looked at his international assets, the the, 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 the biggest business. And we went from I think most people would have seen. Uh, nine and seven being broadly the same, both sort of mm. around about billion dollar companies. You know, uh, uh, at the point we're chatting, you know, seven is is, is, is seven West Media is worth something like eight hundred million. Mm. Nine, the new nine, is worth about three times that now. So sort of in the sort of around about two and a half billion dollars yeah. now. Uh, someone said to me, "What what would a media company look like today if you started it?" And I said, "Oh well, you wouldn't do." television or radio or anything you just do a brand and effectively distribute that content across as many mediums as you possibly could which is essentially what nine's done and and i suspect going forward we might see something with seven evolving perhaps with radio that might be something later down the track they obviously have publishing assets themselves so i think what we're starting to see is the formation of content companies in some capacity with lots of different mediums of distribution not being dependent on one particular model of distribution of content anymore well Viv let me bring you in as well um I mean again it's where to begin your 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 previous background makes you something of a real estate expert so uh, do you think domain has finished the year stronger than it started at the moment, the official party line from Nine is that they're leaving Domain as it is for now. They have a recently installed CEO, Jason Pellegrino, who was formerly of Google. Domain is one of Fairfax's assets that was doing better than most. It was a profit centre for them. So for now, they're sort of leaving it 
as is. There were, towards the end of December, some changes to Domain's structure, which included the departure of their chief sales officer, Tom Ainsworth. But that decision actually came from Pellegrino, not from Nine, even though Nine had also brought the Fairfax and Nine sales teams together and there had been some redundancies. So as we speak, it seems to be Domain's running its own show, but Everybody speculated when Nine bought Fairfax that Nine wanted Domain and Nine wanted Stan, so they're going to have to do something. An early days for Domain, but um, under Jason Pellegrino, but very different. So, I, I guess the personality of the organisation was previously driven by Anthony Catalano, who'd uh, long-term real estate guy. Um, Pellegrino not from from a Google background. Ironically, much like Michelle Guthrie, who we'll talk about in the moment. Um, what 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 is the early word on how he's doing? I'm getting quite mixed reports about Jason Pellegrino. Obviously, he inherited a company that had accusations of being a bit of a boys' club, not treating women very well. The accusations were never quite directly levied at Anthony. It was all very implied that a culture was allowed to exist, but he wasn't necessarily accused of being the perpetrator. So it's not a surprise that they brought in someone from such a straight-line company like Google that would be all about processes and procedures. Pellegrino's had about 100 days in office now and has started to make his mark with this restructure. I still have some contacts in the real estate world. They were huge fans of Tom Ainsworth and are really upset at the restructure, which is now going to be B2B and B2C. And they've got Paul's favourite buzzwords in there like chief customer officer and all of those (laughs) business units that we so love to write about. But others think that he's got a good business sense and he's making Domain a more professional and less boys club workplace. So I think we'll need more than 100 days to see what he can do for that business. And just before I bring Paul in, um, Melina Cruikshank, the uh, CMO of Domain, uh, caused a bit of a surprise when she moved over to uh, the direct rival REA Media, um, the News Corps aligned one. I'm sure she'll have a long gardening leave to do. Would we see Ainsworth go over in that direction, do you think? Or? My understanding is that Ainsworth is not short of job offers or opportunities, but it wasn't his choice to leave Domain, so it would have come as a bit of a shock and he is just going to take some time before we see him pop up again. What it's important for us to remember here in Sydney is Domain is really prominent in Sydney, so it's very easy for us to default and believe that that's the big market player. It's not. REA Group is the big one. Realestate.com.au is the big one, not just in Melbourne, but in the rest of the country. So people like Melina and potentially people like Tom defecting to REA, they're actually moving to the bigger and for now the more successful business. And I guess the more globally aligned one as well. Um, still, I guess if you're going to get shown the door, then then what better time to do it than, uh, than when you can have a sort of break over Christmas? Now, Paul, you were going to uh, come in on this as well. I think there's an interesting thing to watch going ahead into 2019 is what happens to the property market in this for both REA and Domain because if we are seeing a weakening property market across Australia that's that's really going to affect both those businesses and interesting enough for Nine if they're looking at selling Fairfax's old Australian community newspapers arm or sorry Australian community media arm then that's going to be affected by the declining property market too as those suburban papers are really heavily reliant 
on real estate um, advertising. That's a good, uh, actually, that's a good diversion to get into the question of the regional papers. Um, I guess, sorry, the, the drumbeat a little while back on the regional papers was that News Corp were falling out of love with them, might try and pass them on to private equity or something. Then this sale from of, of Fairfax to Nine happened, and it felt like that put News on pause, almost to wait and see what happened. It definitely did, and I think that it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a shock to me if we saw in the new year or in the coming years the regional assets of both what is now Nine and, and News Corp being sold to private equity together and bunching everything now. I think they're curious to see what Nine thinks it can do with the regional newspapers. I don't think Nine particularly wants them, to be honest, but I think they've definitely gone, oh, hold on a second, let's have a look here and see, suss out, can we work together on this or... Do they can they see something or a way of making them commercially viable in a, in a way that we haven't? It definitely feels like there's a pause at the moment. And if we're looking regional, could it even conceivably be wider than just newspapers? You know, regional TV, regional radio assets all bundled together. Do you think? Definitely. Well, Southern Cross Stereo CEO Grant Blackley has banged on about everyone being an acquirer or an acquiree. Is that the opposite? Yes. <laughs> um, it, you could see the potential for someone like Prime. Or, or some of the Southern Cross Australia expanding into uh, newspaper assets as well as what they've already got in television and in regional radio, that could work as well. So it might not be private equity, but I would imagine that they will consolidate the regional newspapers at least and probably get rid of some duplication there. And yeah, that's what that's what I would say would happen. Well, we alluded to it, Paul, so I'll, I'll, I'll get you to tell the sad, sad story of um, Michelle Guthrie and uh, her chairman, Justin Milne, um, at the ABC. What a disaster. So it was a tough year for the ABC. We had started hearing rumours about Michelle Guthrie being in trouble in her position. This was the managing director that came across again, like uh, Jason Pellegrino from Google, um, uh, th- that time from Singapore. And... This generally started to gain steam until we started seeing over one weekend that uh, she really was in trouble. So it wasn't unexpected when she was unceremoniously dumped one morning and then Justin Milne went on ABC News 24 and had what was, could only be described as a disastrous interview with um, on News 24 there. And uh, really, again, you couldn't help but think he's... Um, He's only he's a dead man walking after that interview. It was so bad. And sure enough, within two days he was gone after allegations started dripping out that uh, he was he'd been trying to interfere with some of the positions of uh, the journalists involved um, in various stories. You can't help but think that he was being to crack under the pressure that the federal government and various elements of News Corp were putting on him. So uh, we've ended up the year uh, with the managing director and uh, the chair position at the ABC vacant. And the ABC perhaps as weak as we've ever seen it. Um, Zoe, one of the things that interested me about the ratings when they came out, when we were looking at them at the end of the year, in share, particularly amongst young people, no one watches the ABC anymore. Definitely not, but I think that's a sign, a broader sign of the way that young people consume media. Although when we had this discussion, and I think it was on a podcast recently we did say that 
whilst it is a small share relative to the other commercial broadcasters, it's considerably smaller of that lot that are actually watching television. Yes, if you're right, I think it was sort of in that 16 to 18 year old group, about 5% of those who are watching broadcast TV are watching the ABC, which is tiny. It is, it is really, really small. I think the ABC has a number of programs, and we've seen it this year in TV ratings, that, that are really strong. I'd say they're probably being watched by the older demographic who are the people that actually tend to watch a lot more television anyway. So outside of the leadership issues that the ABC obviously has going into next year, they do have a real challenge with getting to that younger demographic, engaging them with content, that they probably can't get anywhere else and and, and content that can actually, that fits in with the ABC's quota. They almost need some sort of digital platform like Project Jetstream or something (laughs) like that. (laughs) No, really? I hadn't heard about that. Um, I don't think we'll ever hear of it again, will we, Paul? <laughs> no, I think it's well and truly gone. We This did, was Justin Milne's pet. That's right. And it was funny enough, part of that disastrous interview that he had on News 24 with Joe O'Brien that uh, really he, he started mentioning Project Jetstream and uh, no one really knew what he was talking about. And every time you mention this to senior managers at the ABC, they, um, they smile sadly and um, just shake their heads it's uh, i think it's uh, well and truly gone well changing topics um it was as i alluded to at the start perhaps one of one of those times when me too began to finally move up the media agenda in australia um craig mclaughlin uh, barry hall jeffrey rush all found themselves in various aspects of for want of a better phrase, sexual politics. Um, Viv, do you want to get us into this one? I know that's not a particularly attractive invitation. Viv, do you want to get involved in sexual politics? Absolutely, always. Uh, Look, it was a really interesting year. I don't know that the Me Too movement took hold as much in Australia as it did overseas. There are so many reasons for that. One, we obviously just have less people, less celebrities less people to perpetrate these horrific things. But as Tracy Spicer, who's been quite active in this area and used to be quite a prominent media personality, said at this year's Radio Alive conference, we are also quite held back by the state of our media industry and publishers' fears of going after people who may be perpetrators because of that very real threat of defamation and of those names that you listed Craig McLaughlin is suing the ABC is suing Fairfax and is suing one of his accusers Christy Whelan Brown and Jeffrey Rush is suing the publishers of the Daily Telegraph now we don't know how guilty or not guilty they are but regardless of that these publishers are having to throw a lot of money at defending the accusations that they put out there now, um, in a moment, I'll go back to Barry Hall because his his issue was something slightly different. Um, I just want to bring you in, Abby, because obviously you write about the agency scene. Other parts of the world, we've heard so much about problems in agencies and names have been named and people have resigned. My instinct is there is a problem here, but for the reasons um, Vivian's just been talking about, it's really hard to bring them to the surface and for people to name names. You're the, our, our agency's writer. Do, do you see it that way? 
Absolutely. And and it's a discussion that has been happening all throughout the year. And there certainly have been people that have brought names up with me and brought names up with other publications. Uh, and I know it's been something that's been really hard for other publications to publish for these reasons. It's you need proof and, and the defamation laws in Australia makes it really difficult to do that. And I'll go to industry drinks and events and you'll be there too, Abby. And people will come up to us and say, why haven't you done a big reveal on insert name here? Why haven't you held him to account yet? And it is, it's a really difficult conversation to have because we want to be seen to be champions of doing the right thing and holding people to account and helping these women or men who may be in distress. But it's something that's very difficult, one, to stand up. You can't just call up the agency CEO and say, hey, how frequently do you harass women and what's your statement? I mean, you, you could, but you're not going to get anywhere. And then you just know that you're going to start getting the legal letters and the current legal framework just does not favour publishers, I guess, doing the right thing in this space. There's an, And there's another aspect from a journalist's point of view too on this is that people in Australia are really reluctant to go on the record about their experiences. That, uh, And I think that's probably because the marketplace is much smaller here. So it's a 15th the size of the US. If somebody comes out publicly with that, they are going to get uh, sadly professionally disadvantaged by doing that. And so as a consequence, people really don't want to be named in these things. Um, slightly tangential to the uh, media marketing industry, this blew up earlier in the year in the startup industry. And the lady who did name names then withdrew all of that and left the journalist at uh, Fairfax Metro really high and dry uh, midway through a story on that. And then that journalist found herself vilified by the startup community as well. So this is a real problem of getting sources to talk. And then going back to the defamation side, of course, if we're going to stand up uh, something like that in court, we're going to have to have those sources clearly identified so we've got a truth defence. And if they don't want to come out, then we really don't have a story on this. Yeah, for those who are unclear, the way that the law works in Australia is that if you make an allegation, you have to be able to prove it in court. And if you can't and you, you, that person sues, then you'll lose. It's at the point now where we have published quite a few opinion pieces talking about this situation, but they've all had to be anonymous and everyone who has sent them in even though I have tried to persuade them and say it would be a great thing to put your name to it, I completely understand why they choose not to because, you know, there's just so much at risk for them professionally because if they're calling out their bosses, people in their company, even if they don't name the names of the perpetrators, it, it people generally can sort of guess or even if you allude to someone, then that's where the defamation law can come into effect. So yeah, it's just really difficult on so many levels. It just I just had a thought while we were talking about this. Obviously, ABC journalist Ashley Raper actually came out this year and made a statement with regards to the former New South Wales opposition leader, Luke Foley, who resigned after it all came out. But if I just remember, and there are a lot of people supporting her, but there would have been a bunch of people that the risk of coming out and actually addressing uh, misconduct publicly it's it's so overwhelming and I remember just sitting through Twitter and I'm reading her statement with shivers down my spine reading everyone else backing her and just thinking that's that's what some you've got Luke Foley out there d pretending that she's made it all up completely denying it threatening to sue her for something that she I'm 
under, under her recollection, that's the way it happened. And it's worth it's, it's messy. Point, she didn't want to go public. No, she, she had didn't. That thrust upon her. She had that thrust upon her as well. What what does that say about if if people do have these experiences? She didn't want to come out and say anything. She ended up having to come out and say something because it was being used in Parliament against it was being used in politics i just think you know that's and she did an amazing job of what she did and i I think there's a lot of women out there that were amazed by her courage but it's a difficult situation to come out when you've got problems like that well also what's unfair is no journalist wants to be defined by that story and i'm sure she won't in the long term but for a while that's what people will associate her name with um staying with um with, with sexual politics but um moving to more i guess the area of faux pas so viv barry hall made some pretty tacky comments i think was it triple m is that right is that where he made them yes uh, barry hall was on triple m and found himself very quickly in hot water for going into graphic and crude detail about the birth of a co-host's child and it very unfairly sort of targeted the woman who was giving birth and obviously she wasn't in a position to say, please don't talk about that level of detail to the blokes on the radio. The backlash to that was quite rightly pretty swift. And I uh, I agree and it was the, the, the backlash was, was rightly, we talked about it at the time. The, I suppose the question is some months on, the knock-on effect of him losing that job and losing other media work is that he and his family are now in financial straits. And I just wonder how... um, When you have a public downfall like this, is there a way back or is that it? Is your public life now over? Oh, I'm going to make some enemies with this response, but... I think if you're a white man, there's a way back for sure. We've seen it time and time and time again. Whether that's guaranteed for Barry Hall, it's probably not. He's probably struggling to see the light at the end of the tunnel and wondering if he can come back and I'm sure there are people who haven't. But I think being a successful, rich white man with a media profile means, yes, it is very possible to come back Obviously, I've moved to Australia quite recently, but I was quite shocked to read back on the Mumbrella website all the things that Carl Sanderlands, the the controversies that he's been involved in, and yet he's still the number one FM breakfast show in Sydney. Yes. So that just proves that point. And over the years, there was the lie detector test where they, 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 they put an underage rape victim on the air. There was the time that he accused a female journalist of being a piece of shit on the air because she'd written about the poor ratings for his show. There were a number of times. Um, but, look, you know, they're still Sydney's number one uh, number one FM duo. So Barry Hall can look to Carl Sanderlands for inspiration should he feel the need to come back into the spotlight. Well, from that cheery spot to um, Sir Martin Sorrell and WPP... And those two things were synonymous for, for many, many years. So Martin Sorrell was the man who took uh, took it from being a tiny off-the-shelf company, Wire. I think it was Wire and Plastic. Wire and... Wire, paper and plastic? Wire and paper... I thought it was Wire and Plastic Products. That's it. Wire and, it was, they, they made, they made sh- shopping trolley baskets anyway um, until they became WPP. Um, abs, and then suddenly he wasn't with WPP anymore. 
Yeah, so in April he left WPP and that that followed uh, investigations into personal misconduct of Sorrell. That's why I'm saying alleged. Alleged, correct, yes. Um, And that sort of was the start of a lot of big change for WPP. It it sort of did start last year and earlier this year, but when Mark Reid, the now CEO of WPP, across the globe came in we saw a lot of change at WPP so since then uh, he flagged that there would be a lot of a lot of mergers and we've seen VML and YNR become VML YNR uh, more recently we've also seen JWT such a historical ad agency uh, merge with Wonderman to become Wonderman Thompson I believe it is and even more recently than that, we've also seen WPP come out and flag that they are pivoting how they approach uh, the market and, and how they position themselves. And to take that further, we've even seen Mike Conahan, who was WPP AUNZ's CEO, resign, and that spot hasn't been permanently filled yet either. And we've also seen Sunita Gloucester come in uh, in a new role that WPP have brought in as chief chief customer officer. So there's been a lot of change for WPP and I suspect that this is just the beginning of it as well. And the other thing it feels to me is that WPP is a real microcosm of what's going on for wider industry trends. You know, arguably there are too many creative agencies out there, particularly in a smaller market like Australia, too many media agency brands, the revenue model behind all of them changing. Um... It, there's a there's a lot going on there, isn't there? I would totally agree with you on that, Tim. But something that I would say is I actually feel like WPP are a little bit behind in that. I think that's a conversation that agencies have been having for for a while longer than since WPP sort of flagged this. And to me, it feels like maybe with WPP, it's a little, it's almost too little, too late. And it it kind of feels our clients going to wait for them to really reposition and repivot themselves into what agencies are already doing and have already started to do. I had a really interesting conversation uh, early in in December, um, and I kind of said, "That's great. I'm going to take that comment and use it myself." And and the the person I was chatting to, who was Danny Bass from IPG Media Brand, said, "No, no, you can say you heard it from me," um, which was his his view, and I I, I totally believed it once he said it because it just it it felt so true is that a lot of the agency groups have been going through this the five stages of grief understanding that the models are never going to be what they once were in terms of the finances so the the ones that have got there first are, are now at acceptance they're dealing with it but there are there are plenty others that are still in denial and look, another person who I think sums it up really quite well is Ad News's Lindsay Bennett, who is a prolific user of Twitter, but this did happen to catch my attention. So very recently, WPP AUNZ revealed their brand new logo and Lindsay tweeted, WPP AUNZ, we have no CEO, hundreds of agencies that need consolidating and our share price continues to tank. Also WPP AUNZ, you know what we need? A new logo, which I think speaks to what Abby was saying before about too little, too late. 
WPP globally are saying we're going to have to consolidate agencies. There's too much duplication. We're finally going to be customer-centric. But, hey, here's a spotty new logo to distract you from the impending doom. And I think the interesting thing about what you mentioned, this customer-centric thing, Viv, is if you weren't customer-centric before, what were you doing? Agencies now, and even sort of in the last year, I've really heard, seen the ramp up in talking about being customer first and customer centric. But it's something that most agencies have been doing for a while. And this comes back to my point of it seems too little, too late. And and I just think that they're they're trying to they're not changing to be in front. They're changing to keep up. And that's sort of where I see the recipe for disaster happening. So what Sorel said on a panel in India um, towards the end of the year was the uh, that the uh, when WPP came into being they got on the back of the globalization that was going through the world at the moment that uh, you had the major american brands who were rolling out across the world you got on the back of those got on their growth and that's where you went and he made an interesting point that now you've got to get on the back of the tech companies the googles the amazons the um, alibabas and so on and he said and this is really what he's doing with s4 capital is that he's looking at that you look at the wpp restructure that was announced around about the same time that he was on that panel and the same thing there that they're trying to do that interestingly on that panel sorel said that uh, he thought the publicists were probably the most ahead on this but they weren't really executing that well whereas densu were probably in the best position in that and wpp was somewhere in the middle which is in his words not the best place to be and i think wpp is such a big company you know even in australia and and across the globe that by the time they've finished this let's call it a makeover there's going to be a new trend that they're going to have to to keep up with and and that's where I see the real the real problem and just going back to what you said Paul about Sorel it's all well and good him saying all this but let's remember that all of these changes have happened since he's left so it's almost are they cleaning up the mess that Sorel left behind yeah there's nothing like a leader leaving and then blaming (laughs) the new people for all of the problems that realistically they created I'm sure that WPP has some problems but we can't pretend that Sir Martin Sorrell didn't help create some of those they haven't all come into being in the past couple of months so I do enjoy watching him sit up watching from on high telling everyone else what they're doing wrong to his glorious company and let's also remember there locally we've got this leadership vacuum as well because you know certainly at the point we're recording this no boss of wvp no boss of dentsu ages network um so there are there there are some holes at the top well i was just going to add to vivsing that i think uh wpp plc's current management is being really really diplomatic at not biting back at him at the moment give that one time um let's stay with advertising the year in advertising the ads the creativity the fun bits abs i'm not going to call it a vintage year but there were some high spots i i was i was looking back at at the ads some of the ads that we've had writing a piece for the end of the year and and there were i I definitely think there were and you know maybe if i can start off by by speaking about a, a trend that I've certainly seen in advertising this year and it's something that I have spoken a lot about in previous podcasts when we've we've chatted about ads and I think this year has seen sort of a real focus on strategy for advertising and and in ads there's been yeah a lot of emphasis put on the strategy of an ad and because of this I feel like there has been a little bit more of a lack of the creative in the ad and I think that 
this year we've really struggled to see strategy, advertising and return on investment for brand all come together in one ad or one campaign. And that's certainly something I would like to see more of in the next couple of years. And by no means am I saying that that's an easy task, but it's definitely something that I've seen this year. And and I, and I do think that we will see that start start to change. So who do you think did do a good job this year? My favourite ad this year and an ad that I think that did that really well is the AFL work that Clemenger BBDO Melbourne did at the start of the year. It was their Don't Believe in Never campaign and it featured a a young Muslim woman and her father. And it's really moving and really beautiful. And as an AFL fan myself, I really loved that. And I do think we have seen other good ads this year. I think the Tourism Australia Dundee ad was actually really brilliant and, so and this was the crocodile dundee campaign created by droga five it began to drip out a few days before the super bowl yeah correct so it was when it first came onto youtube it was sort of leaked if you like as a trailer of, of a sequel to the crocodile dundee movie featuring chris hemsworth and danny mcbride and it really sparked a lot of conversation uh, certainly within the trade press within advertising and it, it was always speculated to be a tourism ad and then it later came out that it was in fact a Super Bowl ad made by Droga 5. They won a project for it last year and I think that was one a really really good ad in advertising and since then the Tourism Australia account moved from Clemenger BBDO to recently MNC Saatchi and Digidas so doing their creative and then their digital as well. Uh, another let's call it interesting campaign that I think sparked a lot of our commenters uh, is the money with Sunny Suncorp campaign and that why do people hate Sunny honestly I don't I don't know we get so many comments from members of the public who've googled the ad when they see it and then discover that that we've written about it so they choose to have the conversation there they do it's got it's got something close to 100 comments but the ad basically is is back to Macklemore and Ryan Lewis's thrift shop and it's it's a young girl maybe I'm going to go and say about eight years old and she finds a $20 note on the ground and she sort of runs around and does things with this $20 note if only you could see the the, the movements that (laughs) Abigail is doing right now um and Basically, I think one of the marketers at Suncorp at the time said the aim of the Sunny ad was to help uh, finances become a family conversation. Now, I don't know if that's what I got from that ad. Uh, I liked the song and I liked the, the feel to it, but I'm not sure from a strategy perspective if that's quite how I understood it to be. And it really did trigger the readers. And it, uh, I, I was taken aback at just how visceral some of the... Um, some of the unpublished comments we have towards that uh, towards that campaign, and yet it's such an it's such an innocuous campaign. Yeah, and funnily enough, that's always our. Whenever anybody criticizes our comment thread, is that the answer is always you should see what we don't publish. <laughs> exactly, and uh, of course, since then, Suncorp has moved its media account from Publicis to OMD, and that that happened towards the end of this year. Uh, another two ads, sort of wrapped in one, that that were interesting this year was uh, MLA. Of course, yeah. Now let's set this up. So MLA, they they're quite good at building events. Not quite the Super Bowl, but they always have a big spring campaign, and they always have something around the day formerly known as Australia Day. 
So this year, their summer campaign, if you like, or formerly known as their Australia Day campaign, was uh, sort of a West Side Story musical campaign, which basically uh, had uh, the right wingers and the left wingers dancing off at each other and it and it still very much was political but it just didn't have the same flair to it as it had in the previous years yeah what I didn't like about that musical campaign was how stereotypical it made the left and the right Mm. it tried to pretend that it was mocking the left and mocking the right and mocking the culture wars that we have at the moment but it actually just really played into the ridiculous debates that are happening, whereas the year prior with the Boat People campaign, I think that that was actually taking a stand, making a political comment, but not trivialising the issues about Boat People, the issues about Australia and Invasion Day versus Australia Day and the issues we have around our heritage. The political one was just a bit naff for me. And I would agree with you there and I think it's actually a tone that we've seen for MLA as a whole this year and it's something that it, it just didn't feel like it compared to the years before and now when you bring their spring ad into it, this was an ad that actually ditched politics altogether and it also dropped the tagline, you never lamb alone and changed it to share the lamb. And this one was a series of ads. I think there was one in a spa and he was making lamb kofta, if I can remember it correctly, and another woman on a massage table talking about making another lamb dish. And it was trying to just show how easy it was to make it while you were doing something else. Correct. And, and you know, to be fair, the focus was put back on actually making lamb. And I think that was an obvious deliberate strategy that the monkeys and MLA chose. And, hey, maybe it worked in selling more lamb. Maybe it didn't. But from an advertising advertising perspective I certainly was hoping for more that that was the thing it just it felt small you know normally MLA ads feel big they feel important cultural moments that are going to get the whole country talking you know they they put enough of a budget behind it enough of a PR campaign behind it that it becomes a news item on the national agenda and this time it it I don't know, was it a loss of nerve, do you think? Or There is also a new marketer at MLA, Andrew Howie, the former former sort of head of marketing there. He obviously is, is quite well known as being a very controversial marketer and a, and a good marketer too. And, and he, I think this was his first year not running the MLA marketing team. So I don't know if it's a reflection of that or if there is some losing the nerve or if we're going to see something big next year. Who knows? And what you always get with these things, and I've heard it so many times from agencies, I almost don't give it away to anymore. People say, you should wait till you see what's in the pipeline at the moment. And it doesn't always emerge. So we will wait and see. Another another campaign which caused some differing of opinion, let's call it, is, is Vegemite. So that was Thinkabelle's first campaign for Vegemite after they won the account from JWT after 74 years. And this starred Aussie icons basically in the diamond of the Vegemite jar. And it was kind of the way I described it, memes in a Vegemite jar. That's the ad... Australiana memes, I suppose. Correct, yes. And for me, the ad did not do it. I thought, again, this was a very heavy, strategically-led ad. See, the one thing I'd add is I, I, I did like it, but I think to make it really land, it needed a really decent media spend. 
and I cannot remember seeing it on broadcast TV after the first week or two. Mm. Well, let's move on from uh, Vegemite to the the one that I think I see as the 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 bravest strategic decision was the decision of Budget Direct to drop the ostensibly successful platform of Captain Risky and go for Sarge, which was this big budget new character. Talk us through that one. Yes, so Captain Risky, you know, was a very, very loved character and and I agree with you in the sense that I think that that was a very brave move because I'm sure that Captain Risky did enough um, return on investment wise and he was such a big brand character for for Captain Risky. But I think they made the right decision. I I remember having a conversation with someone really, really close to the brand and and they were saying that uh, they've done a bit of market research and there is a little bit of confusion about what Captain Risky stands for. Is Captain Risky someone that you insure? So if you can insure him, you'll insure anyone? Or is he someone that you won't insure? And I think that's there was a little bit of confusion there. And I think taking the ad this way will really clear that up and, and, and yeah, gives less confusion. But it also just was a really good ad. I think creatively the production was brilliant it had a great storyline it held my attention start to finish i really enjoyed it now just before i throw to viv and adma was that 45 minutes cool okay we're gonna need to speed up a bit then okay Okay, let's pick another topic viv it didn't really feel like adma's year no adma was a another organization that went through lots of leadership changes and lots of for want of a better word disruption which I think all kicked off or at least publicly kicked off in March when long-serving CEO Jody Sangster left and then really it's been a bit of a rotating door of, of leaders and disasters. Yes, um, you can't use the word omnishambles about everything but um, but yeah, certainly so uh, one, one, I guess where it began to look a bit odd from the outside was Ben Sharp came and went. Yes, so Ben Sharp was former, formerly the leader of AdRoll. Uh, he came in to Adma and lasted just two weeks. Yes, he van- very rapidly vanished, leaving a Ben Sharp-sized hole in the wall <laughs> as he ran away as fast as he could. And look, he came on our podcast this year and refused to be drawn on what went down. So to this day, we're not 100% sure on whose decision it was or who found out what about who and and what happened. But goodness me, even after Ben left, it it didn't settle. They had in June the former CEO of Aussie Home Loans, Stephen Porges, come in as CEO of the overarching body, which is the AADL, which let me see if I can get this right because there's so many Australian acronyms. Alliance of Data Leadership. Le- data Leadership. Correct. I was nearly there, nearly there. So he came in to be that, which also oversees the Institute for Analytics Professionals Australia or the IAPA. They're a fun crowd. The Data Governance Australia, so DGA. and Party animals. And the Digital Plus Technology Creative. Crazy cats. (laughs) Honestly, what, what a fun time that would be. So he came in, then... There were accusations against him and his business conduct, so it yes. wasn't smooth sailing for Ac- him. Accusations which uh, the court found uh, proven that he behaved in, uh, to use to use the correct phrase, uh, with misleading and deceptive conduct in his previous role. Yes, so there was that. And then, 
goodness, on top of everything else, they cancelled their A, C and E awards, which is the Australian Creativity and Effectiveness Awards, formerly the ADMA Awards until 2014. They sent out a last-minute email to people who'd already entered and said that the awards deserve a broader platform beyond a spectacular gala night and that they will be back in early 2019, bigger and better than ever. Now, we're well into December and I've not yet seen anything, so I'll be interested to see if they will be back in early 2019, bigger and better than ever. But they have a new leader in the form of former Global Chief Brand Officer of Jolique, Andrea Martins. Who has a really good reputation. Who joined as ADMA MD in August, so... Perhaps it's settled. Yes, she's certainly seen as a very strong marketer. I saw her speak at an event a, a, a few months back, and you know she certainly spoke with a, a degree of authority that they'd perhaps in more recent months lacked. But goodness me, it has been a, a year of change for our friends who seem to love any form of acronym, the AADL and. Adma. So if it does settle, I'm sure that their their members will be pleased because 2018 felt like a year where they weren't really serving the needs of their members. Well, Paul, there was perhaps one organisation that had a year that was worse than Adma's, and that was arguably certainly in terms of, of headlines, if not profitability, because they carried on to grow, was... Uh, was Facebook. They they had a pretty tough year. Yes, in the words of Her Majesty, it was an annus horribilis for them, wasn't it? They uh, they really did uh, have a bad year. So they came into the year still kind of reeling over the whole fake news scandal of 2016. And then, uh, then we had Cambridge Analytica uh, blow up where uh, a rogue app had been scraping people's information and that information had been sold on by... Uh, uh, by a data science company to uh, the Trump campaign and various other outfits. That saw the founder of Mark Zuckerberg go on a goodwill tour around the world, which included a whole day testifying before Congress in the US, visiting the EU Parliament and uh, testifying before them, where he was warned that he'd created a monster by uh, one of the Dutch European MPs. And then it got worse. The, um, they had a PR crisis where it was revealed that uh, Cheryl Sandberg, the chief operating officer, and who'd really been uh, the golden executive, I think, of the tech sector. Uh, the had, author of Lean In. That's right, uh, that too. The, um, that uh, she'd uh, been involved in authorising a, um, a whole PR campaign, basically discrediting the, um, the critics of Facebook and even doing an investigation, bizarrely enough, into George Soros, which at first they denied and then admitted they did it, as a wonderful mea culpa by uh, their former communications director. And Cheryl decided to tag on the end of that, uh, oh, Matt's thrown himself under a bus and we, we're pleased that he's done that. And uh, let's drive the bus over him a couple more times. So it was very, very strange there. That's tied into a greater push for regulation around the world. And of course, here in Australia towards the end of the year, we had the ACCC bring down its preliminary report where it really did uh, single out Facebook and uh, Google as being the big villains in the whole data industry. So, Zoe, it almost feels to me like bad news for Facebook equals good news for traditional media. And this year felt like TV fans some momentum. It definitely did, although when you said that I went, well, not for Cosmo. But anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, TV had a pretty good year, actually. When I look at it on the whole, it felt like there are a number of strong programmes... It seemed like revenue was on the up. The rhetoric from the agencies was it's the, the, the return of the golden era of television. So it definitely feels like 
at least on the surface, they had a, a better year than, than others. It felt like a little bit of belief came back that it's not, it doesn't actually make you old-fashioned to be sceptical about some of the claims made by digital media. Um, sometimes just being a traditional marketer who invests in long-term branding mixed with a bit of campaign, in more campaign-based stuff, um, that's not actually something to be embarrassed about. Definitely not. I, I definitely think that with all the scrutiny in digital, it was an opportunity for the traditional publish- publishers, broadcasters to go, hey, you know what works? What we've been doing forever, come back to us. And that definitely felt like they, they, they certainly used that to their advantage in a time where everyone was criticizing measurement, return on investment. It felt like that was their opportunity to go, hey, everyone, let's come back here to the thing you know how to do best. So here's a challenge for you on TV. In no more than two sentences each, sum up the year for seven, for nine, for ten. What were their highlights and lowlights? Two sentences. Okay. Seven. They had a strong start with Commonwealth Games, Winter Olympics, My Kitchen Rules, a number of flops, single wives... Dance Boss, Take Me Out. And they got hold of the cricket rights for the free-to-wear, or the free-to-wear cricket rights as well. And they won the year. Good Nine. work. Nine. <laughs> Nine. This is hard. <laughs> You're doing it really well. <laughs> Nine. Another strong start to the year. Married at First Sight, overtaking MKR. Consistent across the board with shows like Ninja Warrior and The Block, won the tennis and were overall happy with their success but obviously had a merger to be focused on as well. And what about Tan? Their first year with CBS, a lot of controversy controversy in their programming lineup, a rebrand that was also controversial in 10 Boss, 10 Peach, 10, New, 10 News First, and they got hold of the Melbourne Cup. We'll just assume there were a lot of commas in there rather than full stops yes. with those two <laughs> sentence summaries. I think that was a very good job done, nonetheless. I I feel I see our next our next topic is is also has got Zoe's name against it, which is the year in radio. <laughs> Don't make me do two sentences for each. Network. I was going to say that feels a bit mean. Um, look, let's let's zigzag around a bit on this one. It felt to me like. In Sydney, the story of Sydney was maybe Today FM finally finding rock bottom and coming up the other side. And maybe in Melbourne it was Christian O'Connell's arrival. Are those fair observations, do you think? Fairly, although on the back end of this year, I think it's Hit Network and Triple M in Sydney to watch. And I would say that down in Melbourne, Kiss FM, essentially ARN's two networks, Pure Gold and, and Kiss, are the ones that have got the biggest challenges ahead of them. Well, let's move on to the world of public relations, PR, and all things communications. Um, Abby, I, I mean, whenever I think of PR and PR challenges this year and issues management, Royal Commission, wow, the banks were hopeless, weren't they? 
Yeah, it was a big year in terms of crisis communications for PR and for brands. And I think trust was was the biggest thing that uh, and, you know, the busiest theme of, of the year in PR. I think, you know, that drip fed through to advertising campaigns where we saw banks really pivot in their advertising to sort of be a little bit more transparent and cut the bullshit, if you like. I think we saw a lot of that. Uh, The year in PR, I think, was also a year for content. I think we saw a lot of agencies opening up content arms. I think the challenge for them there now is is production in that content and that feels like the real missing link and I think that's a trend that we'll see run through to next year. But bringing it back to crisis comms, I think – crisis comms is going to look really different in the next couple of years and I think uh, taking technology into account and also data, um, data breaching, data management and how to use that when not only responding to a crisis but planning, having an issues plan and and a crisis comms plan, I think that's where the real change has been and will continue to grow. Well look we we could literally go on for hours, but we are not TOFOP, so we have to uh, stop as our time is very nearly up. Um, so that does wrap up the final Mumbrella cast of 2018. We've loved bringing it back, so thank you very much for listening. And if you haven't done so yet, then you can make us a belated Christmas gift. You can take a moment and you can go and rate it on your podcast platform. I'm not telling you to give us five stars, but I am heavily implying it. For now, though, have a great new year, and we'll look forward to speaking to you in 2019. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Merry Christmas. To your pit. Happy New Year. (laughs) 